Okay, so what we've been looking at in this class is we've looked at the impact that, of Christianity is seen in the fact that it's all around you. You may not notice it, but we hold particularly Christian-ish views. And many of the things that we just think are natural. It's just the way things are. Turns out, are not that natural. And they're not simply the way things are. But they are a product of a revolution that took place 2,000 years ago. And over these past 10 weeks, we've looked at different revolutions. We talked about the revolution of the person. And how the whole idea that all human beings are equal. And the idea of human rights, that these things that we think are self-evident were not always self-evident, especially in a highly stratified society in the Greco-Roman world. We talked about uh, some of the ideas about family, about marriage, about sex, and many of the things that we assume are natural, the way things are, turns out, are not that natural, but are a product of Christianity. We talked about the dignity of work, the value of humility, the idea of progress. We talked about the story of science, the idea of following the science, that we can trust the science. And, and even the, the, I, the emergence of science in the West takes place within a, a Christian worldview. We believe that God is a God of order. He created the world intelligible. He's given us intelligence to understand an intelligible world. That's the foundation for science. We talk about um, the self, how the idea of the individual emerged, and the distinction between the individual and the person. We looked at death and the dead. That was a fun week. And uh, we talked about last week uh, a lively conversation about healthcare and how in Canada we are currently leaders in not so much healthcare, but more death care. And so tonight, that brings us to tonight. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm drawing from a book with the same title as this class. Um, there's a great book by a fellow named uh, Aquilina and Papandrea, these two authors who wrote together. And they wrote on how Christianity saves civilization. I'm drawing this from, from their conclusion. And so tonight, what I'd like to do is two things. I'd like to argue or make a case that the church can change the world again. I think it can. And I'd also like to leave us with some practical takeaways to become agents of change in our own circles. Does that sound good? That's what we're going to do. So let's frame it. Let's frame it with a passage in Second uh, Timothy chapter 4. This is what Paul the Apostle says. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. 
Lord Jesus, we pray that you would speak to us tonight. Stir in our hearts how we can respond to the gospel in our lives and in our circles. Lord, help us not to be afraid, but to lean in. So speak to us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, have you ever heard somebody say these words? If Jesus were to come back today, he wouldn't even recognize the church. You ever heard somebody say that? I've heard people say that quite often. Often on social media, I see this. That Jesus would return today, he wouldn't even recognize the church. And in the sense that it challenges the church to live more in accordance with Jesus's teaching, I'm like, okay, I, I'm okay with that. But to say that Jesus would not recognize the church if he came back today, I think is nonsense. I would say it is hooey. And may I even add bunkum, right? Because it, says, it suggests somewhere along the line, the church went completely off the rails. And that has become, it's become completely other than what Jesus had planned. And I don't think that's true at all. The fact that you and I are still taught to pray, that, that we learn theology, we learn the things about God, we, we, we're encouraged to give away our finances, to care for the sick, to feed the poor, to welcome the stranger. I mean, that tells me that we haven't gone that far off track. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And if the church has become something completely other than what Jesus intended, well, that would mean that hell is one and it hasn't. And we know that Jesus is faithful in keeping his promises. He, he, he's faithful even when we as Christians aren't always faithful. But I think he would recognize the church. And, I, and, and the other thing I think Jesus would recognize is I think Jesus would recognize our world. Because it would look quite familiar to him. To when he first came... <laughs> when he first became incarnate, and the context in which he entered in, the Greco-Roman world, I think he's going to see a lot of similarities in our world today. And that's been a running theme in this class. That so many of the things that we think are natural or self-evident are not self-evident. And that a lot of the shifts that we see happening in our world today is actually a return, in some ways, to some of the thinkings that we found in the, in the Greco-Roman world. And so the question I want to raise tonight is, wh is uh, whether the church can again change things for the better. Can we change things for the better? And if so, how can that happen? And when I say the church, don't think, oh, how, I hope the church. When I say the church, I'm talking about <laughs> us, right? We are the church. And we're called to step up in a dangerous and confusing world. Now, the good news is, Contrary to what you read, often in the news, the church is declining, the church is, is, is disappearing. The church, the church is actually, Christianity is growing in leaps and bounds around the world. Do you know that? It is growing in incredible numbers. The fastest growing church in the world, apparently, is in uh, Iran. 
Um, and if not Iran, then it's China. <laughs> um, but the church is growing. Like the, 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 I've said this before, but the greatest social change in the history of humanity is the 20th century in Africa, where you go from 10 million Christians in 1910 to 360 million Christians at the end of the 20th century. That's considered the greatest, not religious change, social change in all of history. And so the church is growing. And so I think that's good news. There are more Anglican evangelicals in Uganda than Europe and North America combined. So the church is growing. And so we can, and so we need to recognize there's a lot of good in this world. There's a lot of care for the poor, call for human rights, elevation of the status of women and children. But there's still some worrying things. And we've touched on these in the class. Um, I think in the West that you and I are being put into a position where we may experience um, marginalization and we may be facing increasingly a choice to either conform to secular understandings of the world or risk the consequence of standing up for Jesus now I say this the church has is, is, is caused a lot of problems by shooting itself in the foot by producing narcissistic leaders who do stupid things um, or, or the church gets caught up in consumerism and it focuses on style over substance. And there's all sorts of issues with the church. I'm not saying, hey, the church has just been perfect all these 2000. No, of course not. But I do think the church in the West is, is going to experience increasing pressure. And I've talked about this before. And, and, and one of my concerns is that, is that post-Christian secularism post-Christian secularism, our age that we live in, is looking a lot like pre-Christian Greco-Roman world. And I think a lot of these ideas that are anti-Christian are, are, are showing up in our culture today. So, in our class, we've, we've looked at um, probably eight or nine revolutions that the church brought about. If I were to divide that into two categories, it'd be these two categories. One is the protection of all human life. And secondly, the protection of each person's dignity. The church noted that as human beings, we're made in the image of God. We've talked about this. And therefore, nobody is expendable. Nobody is less than. Nobody is a commodity. Nobody should be bought and sold or disposed of. And this ran against the thinking in Roman society. All people are equal and valuable in God's eyes. And we also talked about how this, this view of humanity really affected how the vulnerable were treated within society, especially the unborn, babies, especially females, women and children and slaves. And Christi Christianity affirmed the sanctity of every human being. And even how it understood marriage was, was, was contrary to the Greco-Roman world. The second category is the protection of each person's dignity. The church affirmed the freedom brought about by human rights or um, brought, uh, brought about 
the church affirmed the freedom that brought about the idea of human rights. And it also created the conditions for freedom of conscience. Now, I never talked about this guy, but he's kind of an interesting guy. Who is the first ostensibly Christianish leader, <laughs> emperor? David? <laughs> Constantine, yeah. Constantine in, in, in 313 uh, AD becomes emperor. And he becomes a Christian-ish, sort of, kind of. He has a vision just in this big battle before he becomes emperor. And in the vision, he sees a cross. Or in this vision, he sees the, the, uh, the first two letters to Jesus' name, the Kiro the, the, uh, in, in, in Greek. He had some kind of vision or some kind of dream that said, hey, this Jesus is a guy I should follow. Now, how well he followed him is a long debate. But one of the things that Constantine did is he made re uh, Christianity, which was being persecuted, he made it a legal religion. It was no longer to be persecuted. And the church is like, oh, happy day. This is amazing. The emperor has become a Christian. And so, you know, the church was quite excited about it. But one of the things Constantine did, and it's interesting, and he's not often talked about in this light, but what he did is he made Christianity a, re a, a, um, a legal religion. But what he said is that in Roman society, you had the freedom of conscience. You had the freedom to follow whatever faith you wanted to follow. Now, this is quite unusual, and this is quite early on. And, and, and some people would argue that that idea of, of freedom of conscience or freedom of, of, of religion can be dated back to Constantine. Other people would disagree, but I, I think there's something to that. One of the things Constantine did is he, he instituted a day of rest for, for everyone. Sunday was a day of rest. And, and so you're not simply going to be worked to death. You had to rest. And the other thing that um, we know is that uh, Christianity contributed to the hope that people had that that. When you die, that's not it. That when you, after you die, because of Jesus, there's resurrection. Where the pagan understanding was if you die, you might end up in a shadowy underworld or wherever you end up is not that great. If you end up anywhere, most likely you'll just be annihilated. If you're a lower order in society, if you're a higher order, you might have an afterlife, but it's kind of like an airport waiting room. It doesn't look very good. It's kind of boring. Um, Christianity offered hope in a very hopeless world to all levels of society. And death, and they would say death is not the end. What is the end is resurrection because our leader defeated death. And that has political power because what can an emperor do to you? I will kill you. Huh. Okay. Our leader defeated death. And in him, we'll also defeat death. So is that all you got? And that was quite transformative. And the church also laid out a vision for true freedom. And the freedom in Christianity is not a freedom to do whatever you wanted, but it was freedom to do good. It was God-given freedom. It was freedom to protect the vulnerable. It was freedom to protect others. It was freedom to love. And, and Christians even had a different understanding of leadership. Leadership was not to lord over someone. Leadership was to disadvantage yourself to the advantage of others. 
a very different understanding of, of, of leadership, which I think a lot of Christian leaders today should probably go back and look at. Because in the Christian understanding, leadership is not a zero-sum game. So I'm the boss, and therefore, Terry, you're not. There's only so much power. I got it. You don't. Christian understanding of power is expensive. I have power, and I empower you. So these are some of the things that Christianity brought to the table. Now, I want to name the elephant in the room. Maybe not in this room, but somebody listening to this might have this elephant in mind. And they'd be something saying something along these lines. Hang on a minute, David. Are you not forgetting all the horrible things Christians have done in history? You sure are painting a rosy picture of Christianity, but you're conveniently forgetting the Crusades. The darker side of Christian history. You talk about caring for the vulnerable. What about abuse in the church? You talk about elevating women, but what about the misogyny that you see in the church? Carrying out by these leaders that you say are so empowering. Well, they weren't that empowering, which are good questions. So in response, I would say this. Most of these cases are well known. Everybody, we know about the Crusades. I always get that. But what about the Crusades? Yes, which one? Well, all, all of them. Um, but we have to say this. These, these dark episodes in church history, and they are there. We need to talk about them. But why do they bother us? Why do they bother people? Because this is not how Christians ought to act. The vast majority of the history of the church is the story of the good news of the gospel lived out by ordinary people, faithfully. These people don't make the headlines because they change the world slowly. You know, I've been, some of you may know, there's a, a prominent um, leader, the evangelical leader this past week, who's gotten in, in a bit of hot water. And, um, and people have been sending me notes. And asking me about this. And here's the thing. This is my response. I said this to, to one of my friends today. I said, you know, every day, every day, thousands of airplanes take off and land safely. We don't read about them in the news. Oh, another WestJet landed safely from Edmonton today. Oh, thanks. You know. So what makes the headlines? The one that crashes. And so we need to recognize that, that, yeah, of course, the ones that crash are going to be on our radar, but I know thousands, thousands of planes land safely. In the same way, I know so many Christians who have lived faithful lives and have died. Have they lived perfect lives? No. They've lived faithful lives. The other thing is that a lot of the complaints that people have about Christianity are popular excuses with a desire to discredit the Christian faith as a whole. And so people use these stories as an excuse to re reject God. And I, I used to do the same thing. When I was an atheist, I would talk to these Christians. I'd say, ha, you're a Christian, right? What about Jim and Tammy Baker? And they're crazy. And this is your, this is your Christianity. I mean, these guys. And, and I just use that to, to discredit them, right? Or, you know, Jimmy Swaggart or whatever it was back in the 80s, right? And the logic goes something like this. I wouldn't want to belong to any organization or worship a God that allows these things to happen. I get that. But here's the point. 
God never sanctions these abuses or failures. And, and we only know these things, these behaviors are wrong because of the revolution that took place 2,000 years ago. We're using Christian standards to criticize these people. We're, so we're, we know these things are wrong only because of the influence of the church. Without Christianity, wh why should we get worked up if there's abuse? Because we know, and we should get worked up because of abuse, but we know that there's times in history and there's different places in the world, even to this day, that do not see abuse as necessarily something that's wrong. So we're actually using a Christian standard to criticize Christianity. I'm like, good on, that's fine. And so people get mad at God. How could God allow? I said, okay, you're holding God up to his standard because you know that he's better, that he's good. And so a lot of, without Christianity, many of the things that people get so worked up over were commonplace in the, in the Greco-Roman world. So if you're talking about child abuse and you say that in the Greco-Roman world, oh, you know, you're abusing a child, you're this younger, I'd be like, He's my slave. I can do whatever I want. He's not even a person. Get off my back. It's fine. We say it's wrong because of a Christian revolution. And so speaking of the Roman Empire, <laughs> I do think we are reverting in some ways. How, how, how are we reverting? Well, First, we see human life is being viewed increasingly in terms of its utility, not its inherent value. We talked about this. We see it at both ends of life, whether it be through abortion or euthanasia. Um, that if, without the Imago Dei, then a human being's value is measured by its utility, his or her utility. And then if it's inconvenient or if it's not, if it's costing the medical system a lot of money or, or all sorts of things, then, then we use those metrics to determine whether or not a life should live. That's increasingly the criteria that's used to determine whether or not a person ought to live. Secondly, and this is a throwback to uh, the Greco-Roman world, is females are being devalued compared to males. And you see this in gender selection. I read about an Australian doctor. He found himself in trouble with his medical board because he refused to refer a couple to have an abortion because he knew they were going to abort the, the, the baby girl. And we see this. If you see in China, like the disparity between males and females and in India, males, like it's incredible. But we, 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 we've seen this story before, haven't we? This is not a new story. Thirdly, we see the freedom of religion is increasingly viewed as freedom from religion, in particular from Christianity. And we talked about uh, Bill C-4, which is a, a bill that's been passed that that uh, labels a lot of Christian ideas um, as, as, as hate speech or, or that um, 
um, will land a pastor in all sorts of trouble if they if they offer pastoral counsel to 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 not just children but to, to adults who who are seeking guidance in terms of under self understanding and gender and identity. I read in the UK Christians who evangelize in Muslim neighborhoods can be accused of hate crimes, and I think without the church, humanity will drift into ways of thinking that are anti-life, anti-freedom. We'll come back to this. The other way is shame over guilt. We talked about the, the emphasis on shame. Uh, we live in a very shame-filled culture. Violent shame in the public spectacle. And so the question I want to ask is, um, can the church change the world again? <laughs> Again, sometimes I hear people say, you know what we need to do? We need to reimagine the church. I think we need to reimagine the church. I feel bad because tonight I'm just saying a lot of, a lot of people say this, I don't agree. <laughs> the church doesn't need to be reimagined. I mean, we never imagined the church in the first place. Uh, I don't think it's up to us to reimagine it. It's founded upon Jesus Christ. The cornerstone and his apostles and his vision for, and his vision for the church is still alive, despite our foibles and failures along the way. We don't conform to a new generation. We don't conform to the world, but we recapture the vision that Jesus has given to us. And so we need to. The church needs to reclaim her power to change the world. And so I think, and I've said this before, but I think our model is looking at how the church navigated its way in the Roman Empire. I think there's, it's not a one-to-one, -one, but I think there's lots of things that we can learn from them. The church in the Roman Empire was extremely countercultural, and it caused them to stand out. It caused them to be salt and light in the world. And so I think we need, part of our challenge is we need to be, take seriously the call to be countercultural. Now, I want to explore what that could look like practically. But before I do so, I want to see um, if you have any questions at this stage. I'll just take a couple. Any comments or questions so far? Yeah, Thomas. Oh, that's a great question. Is an honor-shame culture a good thing or a bad thing? I would say I am concerned about... And I was just having a good conversation with a dear friend of mine today about this, that what we're seeing in our culture today is honor shame without bringing into consideration the gospel, which is guilt forgiveness, right? Honor and shame is horizontal. I, I, the, you can all shame me for something that I've done and I can feel deep, deep shame, but it's horizontal. And honor is things that I could do in order to build up my honor. Again, it's it's horizontal. It's like this. Where guilt forgiveness is the gospel. Is like what I've, I've sinned against you, Lord. Have mercy upon me. Please forgive me. Now, I do think shame is 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 part of the journey to restoration. Like if I've if if I've done something horrible and be like, ah, it's okay, God will forgive me. Like that's, but if I feel, no, if I feel, I feel the shame of doing that. But I also know that there's forgiveness because of the cross. And I also know the community will invite me back in 
and help to restore me, then that's quite powerful. But what you have there is a vertical, a vertical and a horizontal dimension. But what I see happening in our culture and even in the church is this real emphasis on shame where, where somebody messes up, they're done. I'm like, like completely, like, is there no chance for restoration? Is there no chance for second, like second chances or third chances, even if it's done properly? Well, it's, yeah, well, cancel culture and shame, honor are intimately connected. But again, it reminds me of, of in the Greco-Roman world where that whole understanding of shame and honor is just understood horizontally. There was never a vertical uh, dimension. And I think this is something we need to not let go of, right? We need to believe in the cross that, that God can forgive and God through you know, through the power of community and the church and, and that God can redeem even the, 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 the worst situation, right? That God's ability to, to redeem and restore is always greater than our ability to mess up. We say that from the pulpit, but do we believe that as a church? And do we live that as a church? I'm not sure we do. It's a really good question. Oh, yeah, Taylor. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So let me just repeat the question. So how do we know that countercultural is actually something that will bear fruit rather than if I'm putting kind of words, rather than just a reaction that might not necessarily might just like, we're not going to be like that, you know, or yeah. Yeah. I, I think you have to think and pray very carefully about well, to be countercultural, yeah, and maybe that's the problem with the word. Um, we don't live our lives in reaction to. What we do is we live our lives by aligning them with Jesus, who who gives us a a, a new way of living. Um, in many ways, we're not turning the world upside down; we're turning the world right side up. You know what I mean? And so I think if it's counterculture as in a reaction against, I, I don't think that's very helpful. But if, if, uh, if it's grounded in the way of Jesus and we think very carefully about how this rubs up against our culture, like, for example, um, living a life um, without falling into consumerism, like where, where Black Friday is just Friday. Do you know what I mean? And it's not like, ah, oh, I'm counterculture. It's just like, no, the way of Jesus is a way of giving, not of taking and consuming. And so that's you're operating out of truth rather than in reaction to Black Friday. But it'll stand out to all those who are crashing the gates at Black Friday. It's like, oh, where's Taylor? You know what I mean? That's right. Yeah. So if, if yeah, I'm just going to sell everything. I'm going to, you know, that's what St. Francis did. He took off all of his clothes and he walked off into the woods wearing nothing but a smile. And it was like, okay. Um, yeah. I mean, you get that. Yeah. And, and, if, and it's interesting. I had a conversation with a young fellow uh, earlier this week about that, you know, at what, you know, we, we built this building 
And people say, well, you could have taken that money and given it to the poor. Okay, or we can build this and it's a place for uh, Christian education. It's where meals can take place and community could be built. We have a food pantry where we can give food every week. And so lots can be done through that. And so you have to be wise. And, um, you know, and, and that's where you have to be rooted in, in, in what the, the Bible teaches. But I think you also have to be rooted in, in, in the history of the church. Because I know just from studying the history of the church, some of the greatest transformations in society were the result of very wealthy women who gave away a lot of money. I mean, they said they were still wealthy, but they gave away and they 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 bankrolled a lot of the revival work that, for example, that took place in the 18th century. And so this you have to um, you have to be wise. Right. And it's not just a reaction. Yeah. Great questions. Wow. OK. Well, let's carry on and we'll even have room for questions at the end. Um, OK, so what would it look like? What would this look like? To live countercultural. Well, one, we reject the call to be relevant. <laughs> I always hear, the church needs to become relevant. Is it relevant? And I'm like, well, what does that mean? Relevant to what? And the problem is, if the church is always trying to be relevant, one, it never is. It's always about two generations behind. Hey, here's some new cool music. Yeah, that's from like 10 years ago. I'm like, oh, you know. Um, and 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 the thing is, you're always playing catch up to whatever is happening within the culture. And I don't think the call for the, the church is to be relevant at all. We're called to be faithful. We can be creative, absolutely. But we don't live in reaction to what the culture is doing. Our creativity is grounded in revealed truth. Secondly, I think we can overcome neo-paganism of today in the same way the church overcame paganism in the Roman Empire by following the example of some of the early Christians who stood up against those who were being hurt in their vulnerability. Now, we have to get this. Whenever the church stood up and advocated for the vulnerable in the early church, uh, they tended to get arrested and killed. And so just a heads up, uh, as, as Aquilina and Papandrea pa pa put it, they said, it was a persecuted church that originally changed the world, and it'll likely be a persecuted church that will change the world again, bringing back the protection of the innocent and the freedom of religion. Thirdly, we need to not give in to the temptation to compromise for the sake of our livelihoods. And <laughs> this is where it's dangerous. Now, <laughs> this is just a geeky thing from, from church history, but in, um, in the early third century, there was a big persecution of, uh, against Christians. And it was carried out by the emperor Decius. And I, I, I told you a little bit about him, I think last week or the week before. Decius was the one that says, you know, Hilda, if you wanted to participate in society, if you wanted to go to Coquitlam Center, when you walk in, you have to show that you've worshipped all the civic gods, the Roman gods. If you show that certificate, then you can go in. Right. And so you had to actually have a certificate to say that you 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 worship you. You gave sacrifices to the Roman gods. Now, interestingly, a lot of Christians said, can't do that. I can't say Kaiser Curious. I can't say Caesar's Lord because there's only one Lord. That's Jesus. 
and they ended up getting arrested or killed. There's other groups that said, you know what? In my heart, Jesus is Lord, but I'll do the, in my heart, I'm not really worshiping them, but I got to eat, don't I? And so I'm going to go ahead and, and, and do this and get the certificate you know, for the sake of my family. But there's a third group. And they ended up having the certificate. But never actually did any worshiping. And people are like, where did you get that? Uh, uh, well, I know a guy. And so they, you know, they spent a few dollars and they they bought it on the black market, right? And they say, see, now I didn't actually worship it. I just got this fake copy of it, right? And so one of the questions we need to ask is, you know, at what point are we going to, um, <laughs> at what point are we going to compromise for the sake of our livelihoods? And I, this is not an easy question. This is a very difficult question. I had a guy once who was a part of our church and he was the head of a, a, a very large union that was requiring him to participate in certain parades downtown every year. And he says, I'm a Christian, but this is part of my job as a union leader. What do I do? These are, these are tough, tough, tough choices. And so it's something that at least we need to discern. And we need to think, okay, what is behind my decisions? The th fourth thing is we need to resist the temptation to run and hide. <laughs> I have in my notes... We have to resist the circle, the wagons mentality. Okay, now I share this with my students and I pause. I said, do you guys know what I mean when I say circle the wagons? And they're like, we have no idea. Do you, how many of you know what that expression means? Put up your hand. It's probably not a politically correct expression anymore. And he's like, yeah, it's a way of protecting, you know, that, you know, the, the, the settlers used to protect themselves from from First Nations, at least in the movies, like, and they would uh, circle the wagons in order to protect themselves as a way of, of, of having a defense. But what's that? No, well, it's no, it's 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 yeah, it, it, that's what it means. It means to um, it's it means to uh, yeah, look inwards and protect yourself against the world by just huddling um, among yourselves. And so it's it's a way of saying I'm not going to engage with the world. I'm just going to hunker back and hide from from the pressures of the world. So I'm going to listen to Christian music. I wear Christian T-shirts. I'm just going to hang out with Christians, and and I don't want to have anything to do with the world, right? Uh, kind of, yeah, yeah. And in some ways, but the problem is, is that's not the call of the Christian life. And the culture that winks at, you know. Things in the world like pornography or domestic abuse or child abuse or human trafficking or genocide. If you if you turn a blind eye to that, well, then in some ways you're participating in it or you're endorsing it. And so we need where we face a choice between sacrificing our comfort or sacrificing our convictions. And, the, and Jesus does call us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him and to be salt and light in this world. The other thing is we need to resist our, the temptation to just isolate ourselves. I see this, especially after COVID. 
I see guys who are used to be so involved in the church. It's like, where, where, where are you now? And they're on their own. Oh, you know, I can, well, I'll tune in on, on Sunday. I'll watch it. And it's just, and they're just on their own. And a lot of Christians, especially after COVID or, or they're feeling overwhelmed, they just withdraw and they're by themselves. Now, two problems when you isolate yourself. First problem is the, you, you're right where the evil one wants you to be. Because if you're all by yourself, there is going to come a moment in your mind where you're like, is this whole Jesus thing even real? And nobody's going to be around you to say, yes, he is. So he's got you. And the second thing, and I love this great line from our friend Basil, St. Basil from the fourth century. He says this, if you always live alone, whose feet will you wash? Isn't that a great line? If you always live alone, whose feet will you wash? So our call is to live in the world, but not be of it. Distinct, but not separate. And finally, we need to hold on to revealed truth of the faith. And we need to recognize that it doesn't matter what time in history, there are some things that are right and some things that are wrong, some things that are true and some things that are false. And these don't change. To subordinate an unborn person so that you can maintain your lifestyle is always wrong. To allow people to be exploited for the benefit of others is always wrong. To protect human life is always right. To dehumanize is always wrong. And so we need to be clear-thinking, clear-sighted followers of Jesus. Okay, so what does that mean practically for you and I? There's another old saying that I'll debunk. And I've heard people say this, and they, they attribute it to St. Francis, and I don't think St. Francis said this. But St. Francis of Assisi was known to have said, share the gospel always. How's the rest go? Yeah, if necessary, use words. Right? And so the idea is that you share the gospel through your actions, not through what you say. Now, to the extent that what we say and how we live ought to go together, I agree. To the extent that you say you should just act Christianly and not speak of the hope that you have, I think that's wrong. Because at the end of the day, you live a great life and you die and they say, well, Brenda, she was, I, I think she was Buddhist. She was great. She did, she did a, she's a really nice person. I don't know. Word and deed do go together. So what does it mean for us to live our lives, countercultural lives? Well, this is where we need to reaffirm, we need to resist, and we need to refuse. <laughs> Every step along the way, we need to think, well, what do we need to reaffirm, what do we need to resist, and what do we need to refuse? And while we're at it, what do we need to reject? These are really important questions. And so as we look at this to-do list, what I want you to know, first off, is that I don't want you to go home and go, all right, I got it. 
I got lots to do. I got seven things that I need to do. Okay, here I go. Okay, I got only four this week. I got to go. No, it's not about that. It's, you have to discern. Right? You have to the, the context in which you respond to all that we are going to look at is the context of prayer. We are people of prayer. And so I want you to pray about these things. So what are some of our to-dos? Well, we've touched on this, but we need to reject isolationism. Don't hide in a Christian bubble. Because sometimes Christians are saying, like, I don't like, you know, going out in the world because the world's so secular. You know, I don't like, I don't listen to secular music. I listen to Christian music. That's kind of secular, isn't it? Um, you know, the word secular simply means the world that you see. That's all that secular means, like in its, in its history. The other thing is, the assumption is that the secular world does not belong to God. And that's not true, is it? So Abraham Kuyper once said, there's not a square inch on this whole world that Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all, does not look at and say, mine. Every aspect of life belongs to God. And so don't be, oh, I like the Christian world. I don't like the secular world. You know, that kind of thing, right? Don't be doing that. You're enjoying that time. <laughs> you have to be careful. And so it's tempting. It's tempting to withdraw and to just create a little echo chamber around you. Everybody believes the same things, right? But the mission of the Christian life is not to preserve ourselves and hide. We're called to be what? And salt in a dark and blind, a bland world. Our call is the Great Commission of Matthew 28. You can't do this by hiding your light under a bucket. If my dear friend Jeff, when I was living in China, thought, oh, that no good pagan Canadian who lives down the street, we're not going to invite him over for dinner. Because he's, he's, he's an atheist and he has nothing to do with Jesus. So we don't want him tainting our Christian group. If my friend Jeff did that, I wouldn't be standing here. But instead, he invited me over. It was awkward because I caused all sorts of problems. But he, he welcomed me. And we need to be welcoming. So don't be withdrawing inwards and staying there. Now, we have to be careful, though. We have to be careful. We have to be uh, discerning. And so if we are to engage in the world, we need to go into the world spiritually armed. If you just think, oh, you know, I'm okay tomorrow night. I'm going to go and share the gospel at this strip bar. And you're going to tell people well, they need to know Jesus and and then I forgot because I was distracted the whole time. And, you know, you got to be careful. You got to be wise. You got to know your heart. And so the, the vision of the Christian life, and I love this medieval term. It's, it's, it's a little late medieval. But the Christian life, we're called to be contemplatives in action. That means we sit at the feet of Jesus and in prayer we listen. And then we go out. 
as evangelicals, we're good at going out. We we're good at getting things done. Let's go, let's go. We gotta reach a, you know, you know, conquer the hill for Jesus. We need to do that. And, and evangelicals, they get stuff done. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, maybe not so much. And so I think we need to sit at the feet of Jesus and then live out of that. Yes, we get Mary and Martha, right? But you have to be a Mary before you become a Martha. Um, and so we need to be careful, though. And I, 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 as uh, Dr. Ian Proven would always say, he goes, you have to be careful who's, who, who or what is catechizing you, who, what is forming you. And he says the danger is, is a lot of Christians are catechized by Netflix. That's that's where they're taking their worldview and, and how they see the world is, is through the influence of Netflix. And so resist isolating yourself and also resist church shopping. Find a church community, preferably in your own community, and grow there. Now, over the years, I've heard people come up to me and they'll just say to me, well, I left that church. I say, well, why? Well, because I wasn't being fed. You know, I wasn't being fed. I need to, I need to go where I can get fed. I'm like, dude, I said, feed yourself. I mean, you, you need to feed yourself. But I see so many people that they just, they just go from church to church to church. Oh, I don't like that. Don't like that preacher. He's got earrings. Um, <laughs> it's very common. <laughs> and and the, but the, the, now, if you're going to a church and the truth is not being taught at all, and maybe what is being conveyed is how can I put it heretical then you may want to leave that church and find a different church. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. But don't go just simply because you're not being fed. You can feed yourself. And if you don't know how, I can help you. I can give you all sorts of books and ideas to feed yourself. Right? Yeah, well, I mean, COVID, COVID was an unusual circumstance. And I do know that, yeah, there are some people who are a little bit nervous. And so they take in the service online because they want to know what to expect. And then they, then they come. That's okay. And I would say, if you're looking for a church, come to CA Church. We're not heretical. <laughs> but we need, to, we need to know our neighbors. As well, I and mean, that's part of the, the call of the early church. What was um, the Roman philosopher Celsus? His complaint was these Christians are busy or silent in public, but busy in the marketplace. And so the Celsus, who is so mad at these Christians, he's like, I can't pin them down because they're not making public statements. They're just busy in the marketplace talking to each other about who Jesus is. And I think that could be our model. One more point. Technology is not a substitute for real human relationships. <laughs> I say that to my cyber friends online. <laughs> now, I know some of you are shut in and you can't get out. And you Okay, that's okay. Um, but you would all agree. All of us, I'm sure, would agree that 
incarnate relationships matter most? I mean, let me just ask you, would you prefer to have a meal with your friend on Zoom or at a restaurant together or at a home? Maybe of course you want to eat together. And so don't we need to remember that community is embodied. That's why that's the genius of alpha, I think. Yeah. So re resist isolationism. Resist the politicization of our faith. That's something else. <laughs> don't, you know, associate the gospel or tie the gospel to a political party. Resist church shopping. Reject policies that violate human rights and values. Refuse to use the screen to mediate the Christian life. Reject secular ways of seeing the world and reaffirm the importance of relationship and friendship. The second takeaway is this. Respect the value of every human life. There's a, there's a document called the Didache. How many of you have ever heard of that? Have you ever heard of it? It's called the Didache or the Didache. It's actually written probably around the time that the Gospel of John was written. It's a really early church document. Um, and in the document, they talk about the importance of the, the value of the unborn. And to deny the humanity in the womb is to deny the humanity of Jesus in the womb of Mary. That was the argument. And so in the history of the church, abortion was seen as another form of infanticide. Now, I know, I know many women who have had at different points in their life, they've, they've made that decision and they're living in the consequences of that. And again, that's where we come back to the cross. You don't stay in the shame. You come to the cross and you can experience forgiveness, not just for that, but, but for all sorts of things that we do in life. So I want to say that I'm not here to, you know, just to cast judgment and to say, oh, you know, you've done this and this is, you know, there's no second chance. No, the cross means there's a million second chances and there's always forgiveness and restoration. But as we study, the Greco-Roman world had a very different view of the value of human life. And so the abortion, infanticide, abandonment, especially of girls, was very common. The weak were exploited. exploited. And Christians push back against this. And Christians continue to point, push back against this. One of the ministries that I've supported, Karen and I have supported for, oh, almost 20 years, is International Justice Mission, IJM. And it's a Christian organization that does great work around the world rescuing girls out of the sex slave trade. And uh, it's, it's a very powerful ministry. We had uh, the uh, leader... Remember, um, Ray, you remember we had uh, the leader from uh, Radanath, right? And that was a work, uh, the guy did some work helping girls in, in Cambodia. I don't know if, if you were at that thing, but uh, it was a couple of years ago. So there's a lot of ministries that you can be, to, to get involved in. And so whenever a human being is valued or commodified or um, for what can be exploited from it, the Christian ought to be outraged and resist this. And so to be pro-life is more than simply opposing abortion. It's about helping the poor, the marginalized. It's about seeing people who nobody pays attention to. 
It's about valuing the elderly, resisting a culture of death that promotes euthanasia as a means of saving money in the medical system. To be pro-life means to be anti-racism and anti-discrimination. Because all human beings are made in the image of God. So resist prejudice in the world and in the church. Reaffirm the value of every human being. Refuse to participate in a culture of death. And refuse to treat any human being with anything less than respect. And reject human exploitation, including pornography. The other one is this. We reject a culture of celebrity and humiliation as entertainment. Somebody says that reality TV is the Roman circus of the modern age. And so many shows are based on what? Are based on shame and humiliation. And or you have entire shows, people who who are extremely popular for 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 being popular. You know, the cult of celebrity. And so we need to be careful of this. The problem with the spectacles in our world is that they become idols. We even watch shows that have the idol in their name. <laughs> and so we need to recognize the dignity of human beings um, by resist watching them humiliate themselves on TV. And mo a lot of shows are designed to expose shame and humiliation. Even news, I, news shows are designed to promote shame and humiliation. And so we need to reject the idea that indulgence leads to happiness, reject the message that marriage is out of date and that sex could be recreational without commitment, which is a common message. Resist the temptation to watch the story of people's lives that have been reduced to humiliation and entertainment. Reaffirm dignity, reaffirm Sabbath rest, reaffirm creativity, and most importantly, Reaffirm reading. Deep reading. Oh. Oh. Some of you are like, no, yes. I, I've had people come up to me. I've had I've had pastors come up to me and just say, Oh, I want to grow, but I don't read. And I just say, There's no way about it. You have to read. But I don't like reading. I said, too bad. If you are going to be a pastor. You must read, but I don't, I don't care. You have to read. <laughs> I show no mercy. And you have to, like, if your pastors aren't reading, that's a problem. You have to read. The other thing is we need to embrace the sanctity of work and reject the goal of leisure. <laughs> now, rest and leisure are not the same. Rest is important. And in the same document, the Didache, they talk about the importance of work and giving. And so we need to encourage people that work and not look down on somebody who does manual labor. The reality is they're probably making more than we are, especially if they're working in the trades. We need to care for those who are out of work, recognizing, hey, that could easily be us. We need to see the dignity of work. And rather than in the great words of the great poet lover boy everyone's now working for the weekend yeah <laughs> you don't work for the weekend 
but you practice the presence of God in the midst of your day-to-day -day work. You invite God into your day-to-day -day work. Now, I'm not saying you don't rest on the weekend. That's fine. But I hear, I hear people. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm working for the weekend. It's like, no, you're missing life. The other thing is um, with the whole idea of work is, is, is we need to learn to give, to push back against consumerism. There's a book that was, is quite interesting. Speaking of reading, there's a book that was written about 10 years ago, and it was fascinating. It was called Who Really Cares? Has anybody ever heard that book? And what they did is they looked at who gives the most money away in America, actually. Like, who, who's, what's that? Yeah, or, or what group of people gave away the most money? And the people that gave away the most money, like billions of dollars, were Southern evangelicals. Now, you would never think, because everybody in the world knows, you know, the, the more, you know, humanitarian or more <laughs> whatever in the Northeast or whatever, but it's, it's the Southern folks who just give away by far, not, it's not even close, but by far more money than anyone else. And it's, it was a really interesting say. So who really, but it's just this picture. And they were saying, if, if these guys stop giving, the global economy would collapse. And it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating read. But the reminders is that part of the Christian life is to give. And you cannot outgive God. And when you, when you give, when you give stuff away, you're saying, talk about being countercultural. You're just saying, you know what? I'm not, my, my stuff does not possess me. I'm going to give it away. And that, I think, is very countercultural. The other thing we need to, uh, and you've heard me talk about this before, reject a secular assumption about the state and society. The, se the secular assumption of, uh, of our world is that faith has no place in public discourse. So that if you are going to be involved in politics or in, 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 in municipal government or whatever it happens to be, check your faith at the door. Because let's not get religion and state mixed together. Separation of church and state kind of stuff. But the assumption is, is that in public discourse, in, in, in the government, whatnot, you have to leave your faith aside. Okay, so if you leave your faith aside, what are you left with? What, what, what are the assumptions then in, in public discourse? Okay, human beings, yeah. But what, what are they bringing to the, uh, what, what values and what assumptions are they bringing to the table? Yeah, exactly. If I have to, if I have to check my faith at the door in order to participate in the pub, in public life, then what I'm saying is that the default for the arena for public life is atheism. To which I would ask one simple question: Why? Why is atheism the default? Now, why not just say, hey, every person, you bring your assumptions, you bring your understanding of the transcendent or not. If you're an atheist, that's fine. I'm a Christian. He's a Muslim. We're all from different. And we're all bringing ourselves into the conversation. 
Why can't we bring ourselves into the conversation? Let's not, why do we have to check everything at the door except for a worldview that says God does not exist? Because that is a worldview. It's not a neutral. That's not neutral. It's a worldview that says the transcendent, the vertical dimensional life does not exist. Now, if that's what you believe, that's okay. But don't tell me to leave my faith at the door. Why should this public square be naked? Why can't I just bring my assumptions into the conversation? You tracking with me on that one? Yeah. I see public life and, and politics as, as, connect, as connected, as overlapping. So I think, you know, even if you go into politics to say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and that does shape how I see the world. Now, if I am representing my constituents, I need to represent them well and recognize not everybody believes what I believe. But I think you can do that. That is, 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 is a better approach, I think, than saying I am a Christian, but it really has no effect on my, what I'm going to do as a, as, as a leader. Because how do you do that? How do you, how do you separate that? Because basically you're saying, as a Christian, I am going to operate as an atheist. But why? I can still operate as a Christian, and part of being a Christian is to respect the beliefs of every other person. Absolutely. And so this idea of checking your faith at the door and that the public square needs to be naked, I think it's something that we just take as an assumption that this is the way things are, but why should it be that way? These guys. So I think we need to reject the idea that that uh, that excludes religion from public conversation, resist the marginalization of faith from the public sphere, resist scientism while we're at it, but see science as a solution to every problem that society faces. I have also, I just added, resist technique, the idea that everything is a problem that can be fixed through technology. Resist those who promote intolerance in the name of tolerance and reaffirm the teachings of the Christian faith as having universal importance in all spheres of life. Now, I remember when I, when I was doing um, school, when I was doing my doctorate, um, we were having this conversation about to change the world. And uh, my professor was, was, we were having this conversation. I, I think I've shared this before, but, it was one of those moments where I just had to say something. And what I said, I thought, was absolutely brilliant. And so I spoke up in front of the class. I just said, do you know what? What's, how are we going to change the world? We don't have, you know, there's so many challenges in politics. There's so few Christians there. And, and there's these challenges and these challenges. And how is anything going to change with all these challenges in place? And, and I, I went on for quite a while. And I thought, this is good stuff. This is good stuff. I didn't expect them to clap, but maybe they would clap when I was done. And so I finished. I'm like, and my professor just looked at me. And he goes, uh, David, he goes, um, what about God's sovereignty? And everything I said just went. And because you forget that God is sovereign. That God is, and so 
my, the, one of the other things we need to do is re resist a defeatist attitude. That God is, we need to remember God is still sovereign. That the battle is won. That, that, that Jesus is raised from the dead. That there's victory. And so when people come up to you and say, oh, you know, what about the crusade? You know, the church is full. You know, a lot of Christians are just like, oh, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, we, we're terrible. It's like, no, no. Acknowledge what we need to acknowledge. Yeah, the crusades were not a good idea. I don't think that reflected the way of Jesus at all. But did you know that over 80% of all the hospitals in this world were created by Christians? Do you know this idea that you have the freedom to speak to me in this country and, and that you have a freedom of conscience. Where do you think that comes from? And so, as Christians, we, we have to you know, not be arrogant, but we need to know what we know and to be able to speak confidently and put the glory, not towards ourselves to win an argument, but give the glory to Jesus and to elevate him and resist a defeatist attitude. Don't let people get away with the idea that everyone agrees with them. It's not true. And so I want to encourage you tonight to keep fighting the good fight. Where else can we turn? Jesus has the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? And so resist pressure not to talk, to not talk about faith in the church. We resist that. Reaffirm that we are not perfect, yes, nor is the church, but Jesus is. And reaffirm the need to speak the truth clearly, boldly, and also in love for our neighbors, to our neighbors. Resist the temptation to demonize our enemies. Recognize the truth of Ephesians 6, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of this present darkness. Does that make sense? So which one of these takeaways resonates with you the most? What time is it? 8.20. I'm going to give you guys just, I've been talking all night. Yeah. I'm going to give you a couple minutes. Just which one of these kind of resonates with you? Just talk for just a couple minutes and then we'll wrap up. Okay. I'll pause here. All right. Let's, uh, let's bring this home. Be in the world and not of the world. Yes, that's good. So one of my challenges to you is... Do not let the things that we've explored in this class be put on the shelf while you wait for the teaching on heaven and hell in January. <laughs> uh, we need to learn this and we need to know it. Uh, learn it by heart and pray and take it out into the world boldly. There's a, a, one more expression that I want to debunk. <laughs> Actually, my friend, I, uh, my late history professor and uh and mentor don lewis would always say this it's often said that uh, the church is only one generation away from extinction i, I heard people say that and i remember uh, don would always say yeah that may well be true but the church is also only one generation away from revival and i i, I i'll never forget that christianity has saved civilization and can do so again but I think it's up to us to step up in love, to live out our faith in the world for all to see. And I think we can change the world again. Well, God changes it through us. But we need to know what we believe. 
and we need to live it out without shame. We are the church, and the church is the body of Christ. And so we are called to represent Jesus in all that we say and do. And I think if we faithfully, day by day, represent Jesus in the details of our lives and not take a defeatist attitude and instead of shirking back to lean in and to speak truth to our neighbors and not to be afraid. The reality of Jesus does not stand or fall on how well you represent him. He is Lord whether or not you get your stumble out your words or you say it beautifully. Jesus is still Lord. And we are called to be faithful witnesses, not successful witnesses. There's many countries where it's not successful, but we're called to be faithful witnesses to what he has done, not only in our lives, but throughout history. And so that is our call. Does that make sense? Okay, well, let's pray. Lord, we come before you recognizing that we are completely dependent upon you. We are thankful that you have transformed this world. You have transformed our lives. And we confess that sometimes we feel defeated. Sometimes we feel ashamed. And sometimes it feels just easier not to say anything than to boldly proclaim who you are. Help us to be bold. Encourage us, we pray. Help us to speak the truth in love. We do pray that we would be conduits of your great love. That we wouldn't demonize our enemies or anything like that. But we would treat each person, each person that we lock eyes with, with dignity and respect. But we do pray that you would grant us a holy boldness to proclaim who you are. That you are the Lord of heaven and earth. And our lives will only work insofar as they're connected to you. You are the author of life. Help us to live in that and to proclaim this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.